Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us today is one of the nation's leading strategists and strategic thinkers, Dr. Graham Allison, the Douglas Dillon Professor of Government at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School and the director of the university's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. He is the author of a number of important books, including uh, his most recent one, Destined for War, that analyzes the dynamics that could lead the United States and China to stumble into a Thucydides trap uh, of a war. This conversation is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and devoted to the memory of one of the nation's greatest national security strategists, Andy Marshall, uh, the late and great former uh, director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. Dr. Allison, thanks so much uh, for joining us, especially so as one of Andy's good friends. Thank you so much, and thank you for continuing to try to mine some of the wisdom of Andy. <laughs> uh, exactly. Uh, as, as I've said to other guests, you know, where, for, for wherever Andy now is, uh, would look down and say, that was okay. Uh, and so that's what we're, we're shooting for. That was pretty good. Uh, praise, yes. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, before we get started, Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage. And L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All Domain Command and Control. Uh, Dr. Allison, you know, you're, you, you are one of the world's foremost uh, strategists and teachers of, of, of strategy. And I want to get to a pretty much of a basic question, right? Some maintain that strategy comes first and then you resource it, while others maintain, and I think Andy would say the same thing, that the art of strategy is, is actually balancing ends and, and means. From a basic standpoint, how is it that folks uh, at what we would argue is a strategic age should think about strategy because people bandy the term around without really knowing what it mean, really means. So I certainly agree with your proposition that it's a very uh, common word in uh, Washington and in the policy circles. And that for most people, it uh, kind of confuses them because it seems like a, <clears throat> it's a big idea, it's an abstraction, and then they basically fill in whatever they wanted to say. Now, I think strategy is easily uh, this strategy is calculated means to ends. The short version. And the good pastor had a version of it. Strategy is what to do, how to do it, and what to do it with. In the course that I teach at Harvard, which I'm teaching this afternoon, I teach that strategy is calculated means to ends. Uh, so you have a strategic objective. You have a strategic analysis of the environment in which you're pursuing that objective or challenge. And then you develop strategy or strategies uh, of calculated means to ends that are feasible and that are uh, sustainable sufficiently to achieve the objective that you're pursuing. And I would say that as John Gaddis rightly says in his book on grand strategy, the com most common failure is the means in gap, the failure right. to calculate means that you can both mobilize <clears throat> and sustain that are sufficient for achieving the end. 
Um, what, what, from your standpoint, um, I want to get some of these basics down before we start delving uh, deep into lessons learned from Iraq and Afghanistan, and certainly get to the China discussion and how the nation needs to think in a far more nuanced way uh, than the two-dimensionality that sometimes accompanies the China discussion. But from your standpoint, what are sort of the best historical examples of great strategy worth emulating and bad strategy that should serve as uh, you know, a cautionary tale of, of how uh, good intentions can end up, or, or even bad intentions can end up in bad results? Good question and central question. Uh, the best recent example of American grand strategy that was successful was the Cold War strategy. And it began with a strategic analysis or diagnosis of the problem captured in Kennan's long telegram. The problem was a revolutionary, expansive Soviet Union bent on world domination, whose narrative required its continued expansion and success. And as uh, Kennan rightly wrote there, it was that was in uh, that that was a world in which the U.S. could not meet our core vital national interest, which are, as we learned in the Cold War to say in the mantra, the survival of the U.S. with our fundamental institutions and values intact. So that was the problem. And diagnosis in a good strategy precedes prescription. Now then, what to do? And what to do? Uh, there was a period of four years of, of experimentation and learning and practice, or uh, uh, basically working intellectually through a, a set of challenges to develop a strategy, which was ultimately uh, reflected in NSC 68 by Paul Nitze, which didn't come till 1950. So when we think about the Americans are being confused about China today, I think we were a long time even getting the diagnosis right. And it's not surprising that it'll take some time to develop a strategy. So what does the strategy consist of? The, the label for it was containment, but was basically in every relevant dimension to force the Soviets to face a balance of power that was negative for them, that would prevent them continuing this expansion, the successful expansion, which would then basically let the internal contradictions of the Soviet system, which Kennan analyzed appropriately, hollow the place out to the point where either it would collapse, which is what happened, or it would change its objectives. So militarily, NATO, the idea of permanent commitments for a long time to fight for some other country with bases and troops and others, hardly believable in 1945 or six or seven, but by NATO in 1949 50, it becomes a pillar. Economically, the Soviet Union was isolating itself, but the US developed a system for isolating it even further so that it only traded with itself and its, its puppet uh, regimes. And therefore, ultimately, as Andy helped us understand early on, was technologically challenged and was therefore actually, uh, while it had surged initially, uh, uh, falling behind. And politically, uh, this was a cockamamie system. So explaining why a communist command and control system would both fail in managing its own economy and fail in giving its citizens what they want. Together, uh, there was a, a, 
uh, uh, pillars of a strategy. And then the most remarkable thing about this was it was sustained by Democratic and Republican administrations over many decades. So it was a strategy that was both feasible to mobilize by huge, by huge undertaking, but also sustainable in the vagaries of American politics with the changes of administration and otherwise. And I had the great good fortune uh, as an old cold warrior to work within this framework in the period in which I worked with Andy and others. Uh, but basically we were operating in a framework that came to us from people we now wise, you know, we revere as the wise men. Right. Uh, and they did develop something quite remarkable. So I, I think that that's uh, a great example of both a coherent and actually brilliant grand strategy uh, and a successful grand strategy. If I go to failed grand strategies, it's a much longer list. Uh, let me just start with Afghanistan, since that's uh, the sort of the, the flavor of the day. Uh, initially, uh, after the attack on the US on 9-11, uh, CIA, uh, Hank Crumpton, and the clandestine services with 110 people, and then filled out by about 300 special forces, but working with allies, the allies were the, the Northern Alliance and other tribal groups, really ugly groups of people whom we didn't necessarily agree with, but whom intelligence had created some liaison with. Together, by January, they had toppled the Taliban from all of the provincial capitals. This is before any American troops of any substantial form arrived. And actually, had bin Laden at Tora Bora, where we could have conceivably have captured him, indeed likely have captured him if we had taken the actions that were recommended, it failed to do. But in any case, after that came a occupation of Afghanistan with a fundamental misunderstanding that if you came to occupy it, if to quote, liberate Afghanistan and occupy it and construct a modern state there that you would have democratically elected and somehow it would be, achieve the allegiance of the people of Afghanistan and you could create an army that would be have its allegiance to a democratic government, not to their tribal uh, groups. This was a mission impossible, which we chose. So I think basically in my class, I call this vision blindness. So you're the vision seems so attractive if it were achievable that we should pursue it. But the blindness is that's a vision that cannot be achieved with the, with the resources that you can mobilize and sustain for long enough to accomplish the objectives. So that objective failed. And the question was only when we were gonna recognize that it had failed but I think the likelihood that the Taliban would govern most of Afghanistan was very high in the whole period after, especially after we became involved directly. If, if it had been left to the version of essentially what's now understood to be concentrated CT in which we had helped some of the tribal groups and provided some air cover. Maybe they could have created some version of a government to govern Afghanistan, or maybe they would have fallen back in to a civil war in which the Taliban 
would have been one of the combatants. But in any case, it wouldn't have been our war. And since we had, as Biden, and here I think Biden did a courageous, uh, made a courageous move and a right call, in my view, about uh, leaving Afghanistan, uh, not, not the ways to, done, that's another story, but the, about the big strategic choice uh, on the proposition that if we look at American national interests, uh, we had one and only one vital national interest in Afghanistan. It was that it not be the base from which additional 9-11 scale attacks were launched on the US or our key allies, period. That uh, risk, uh, thanks to mainly the counter-terrorist efforts, has now been uh, reduced to the level of the contained risk that also emanates from many other countries like Pakistan or right. Yemen or Syria, uh, where uh, we're pursuing a worthy objective, a necessary objective, that is no more 9-11 attacks on the US, but we're pursuing them by a much more intelligent strategy, which is targeting terrorist groups that would aspire to attack the US, working with whomever will help target and kill or capture them, including the most ugly regimes in the world. So as long as they're doing the job, hold our nose and uh, work at it because that's our vital interest in that particular arena. The fact that they're also doing horrible things to their fellow citizens is, a, is an interest of the U.S. Anybody looking at what's happened in Afghanistan has got to see a heart-wrenching tragedy for the people living in Afghanistan. And I think about the, what about the rights of uh, children to go to school or women to live like normal people or the press to report as it would like. All of those are important for the U.S., but none of them are vital. And vital interests are required if you're going to mobilize and sustain a substantial fighting force trying to pursue some objective. So I would say this was a case of mission impossible uh, in which we failed. And then it took us a long time to figure out how having failed to uh, escape. Obama right. wanted to do right. that back in back in 2009, but couldn't figure out how to do so. Trump wanted to do that, but couldn't figure out how to do so. Biden thinks that he did, and he did. Let me let me take you to the question, and you 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 raised it, Dr. Allison, of vital national interests, right? I mean, the course you teach really should be mandatory for American citizens to sort of put into perspective and prioritize, right? I mean, everything if everything is important, nothing's important, uh, and and also to channel Andy, right? You have you have to get the question right uh, at the end of the day, right? In terms of the definition of what's the problem you're trying to solve. Um, what are America's vital national interests, and how do leaders need to think? about how we prioritize them, whether they're threats, their opportunities, uh, or, or just crisis uh, mitigation, as in the case of what our counterterrorism strategy is, right? The, the ball we're advancing is keeping us from being attacked again. You're, you're not sowing world peace or anything. How, how do we need to think about vital national interests and in prioritizing them? That's a great, uh, a great question and one that I've struggled with over most of my career. So. Uh, Andy liked uh, an effort that I undertook uh, 
was a joint venture between uh, Harvard, uh, the Nixon Center at the time, now National Interest, and RAND initially. And then there was a second edition of it uh, in the year 2000. It was just Harvard and, uh, and what was then the Center for National Interest, uh, which Bob Blackwell and I work with co, I don't know, executive, executive directors. But in any case, this gathered 25 centrist Americans. It ran from Sam Nunn and Bob Graham uh, uh, and the Democratic side to uh, the Condi Rice and Blackwell and uh, Bob Ellsworth and uh, uh, Andy Goodpaster was part of it initially. So 25 uh, thoughtful Americans. And we tried to say, okay, let's, for, for, here's how to think about American national interests. And then we'll be so bold as to actually make four lists called vital national interests. Second list, extremely important, paren, but not vital. Next column, important, but not extremely important. <laughs> the answer is the fourth. Uh, also, okay, uh, so vital, uh, I think if we go back to the dictionary, in, in Washington, vital is used promiscuously. So whatever, you know, some guy shows up from any country and people, the guy, who, the person who meets him at the, uh, at the State Department or the Defense Department, oh, you're vital for, you know, American interests. Now, vital in the dictionary means essential for the survival of, okay? So what is essential in the Cold War? We said, what's essential for the survival of the USA as a free nation, so we don't want to be surviving enslaved with our fundamental institutions and values intact. So that was the formulation of the Cold War wise uh, 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 men. And I think that was the mantra we often repeated during the Cold War. In the commission report, we say that's a good definition of vital. So now if you ask what conditions in the world are essential for the survival of the US as a free nation with our fundamental institutions and values, it's a pretty short list. Okay? Now, how about mega terrorist attacks like 9-11? Well, it only killed 3,000 people, quote, only. Uh, but for Americans who believe we should be secure at home uh, and who probably have unreasonable illusions about the fact that bad stuff should happen only over there and we should watch it on TV and you know, then we can send troops to try to be helpful where we can. The idea of an attack upon the US basically so shook our psyche, both uh, our political psyche and our public psyche, that we lost our bearings and ended up invading Iraq, an innocent bystander who just happened to be a bad guy, <laughs> but who didn't have anything to do with 9-11. And again, on the basis of some story about, well, but Iraq could be the source of a supply of nuclear weapons to Al-Qaeda without recognizing that Iraq was way down on the list of states that might have nuclear weapons that might be transferable. For example, way down beyond North Korea. But we didn't talk about Korea. And secondly, that of all the countries least likely to be the supplier of nuclear weapons, if they had had nuclear weapons to, to uh, Al-Qaeda, was Iraq, because Saddam was an arch enemy of Al-Qaeda. 
Uh, Al-Qaeda's enemy list had the U.S. as the great Satan and Saddam as the second Satan. Okay? So we lost our mind. We lost our bearings. We went off on the wrong track. So that's why I would say that's in the vital list. Now, how about the uh, rights of children and women to live like normal people in Afghanistan? Where does that rank in the hierarchy of interest? And again, you can look at the, it's online, the American Commission on, or sorry, the Commission on American National Interests. That's in the third column. It's not even extremely important. It's only important. Does that mean we don't care about it? Of course, it doesn't mean we don't care about it. Does it mean that we shouldn't do what we can to persuade the Taliban to be less beastly? Of course, we should. And do we have other instruments to try to do that, including shaming them or sanctioning them? Yes. And I would say if we can find instruments that are effective in doing this, we should do so. But if you said, if those rights are violated, which they are now being and will be, does that imperil the survival of the U.S. as a free nation with our fundamental institutions and values? The answer, it doesn't. And while it's quite difficult to say that publicly, uh, again, to go back to Afghanistan and Biden, if you look at Biden's attempt to justify his action or to explain it, he's been very explicit about uh, trying to put it through the screen of a hierarchy of American national interests in which some things matter more, a lot more than other things. And what matters most in this case is that Afghanistan not be the source of another attack on the U.S. You know, when it comes to strategy, almost always uh, folks talk about doing more of something, almost invariably. Uh, we need a bigger Navy. The Army's got to be bigger. We need more airplanes. Uh, and there's very little consideration of what we no longer need to do. Um, how do we need, right, what's the right way to think about what you have to do, but also what you no longer need to do. Because as you said, right, this is about balancing what you need to do, do it in a sustainable way, while also minding resources. I mean, it's easy to spend 3.5% of GDP on defense if you're borrowing a trillion dollars a year. So I, I have uh, many uh, sort of almost contrarian and conflicting views on this. So let me try to just do four or five that are somewhat provocative, but that I, I do think. I think first, uh, we should start by analyzing the strategic environment and asking what constitute threats and opportunities for the U.S. and uh, have some hierarchy of those. So an attack on the U.S. by Russian nuclear weapons would be a catastrophe. So I have to think about that. And a, a, a total war with China in which nuclear bombs would explode in the US. I have to think about that. Another 9-11, it's, it's not as bad as a nuclear attack, but it's another horrible thing. So I think of what are, what are, what are threats to American vital national interests. And then I take my hierarchy of American national interests. Then I ask myself, okay, what are what are mobilizable, sustainable strategies for 
meeting threats or uh, capitalizing or exploiting opportunities. And uh, what, what I'd like to have, and all of this is my strategic planning, all the time knowing that I'm doing this in the context of a government that has a whole set of institutions and organizations and, and hardware and software and practices that have been developed historically for other purposes, but which uh, are the place I have to start. And part of why Andy was so inspiring uh, 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 was that he never, uh, he always recognized that even though maybe relative to the problem we're dealing with, a huge amount of the current activity, budget, assets, platforms, everything else were not part of the solution. They were what we had, and they were actually run by institutions that had a, a morale and a, and, a, and a mission. And therefore, even though David Jeremiah, who was the vice chairman back, I think he even, may have even been Reagan, but you know, way, way back, I remember, uh, uh, became, uh, an, he was a Navy admiral. He became deeply skeptical about carriers because they're hugely expensive. They require a fleet to defend them and they're juicy targets. Uh, well, explain to the Navy why carriers are not the solution to whatever the problem is that happens to be the problem of the day. And given the weapons acquisition cycle in the US, which looks out over a decade, the, and the rate at which threats or opportunities change, services have organized around core missions and a core uh, group and play a huge role in the shaping of whatever forces we have. And then we try to figure out uh, how and whether they're relevant for the threats and challenges that we may, may face. So I think the, uh, the, the, the issue of ev evolving uh, the quite remarkable capabilities that the US military and the Defense Department have built up over the decades uh, to uh, deal with the challenges that we face is an eternal problem. And actually having as many legacy platforms and systems as we have and a highly rapidly changing technological world can be a significant disadvantage. So I would say, but finally, since I'm a very conservative, small c conservative person, I think in terms of how much we should pay or how much we should spend on our security is a separate issue and depends on how safe we wanna be and how, whether we spend the money wisely. So I would have no problem uh, voting for 5% of GDP for our security if I thought the money were uh, well spent because I think we live in a very dangerous world. I think it'll become more dangerous, but I would like to have capabilities that are appropriate to the problem. And an example of that is the special forces capabilities and counter-terrorist capabilities that have been built up over these past two decades, which are quite remarkable and which I think have played a significant role in preventing any future 9-11s. Um, let me uh, take you to 
the issue of how we get better at, at strategy, right? It, it, a great power uh, gets uh, greater global traction when it does things right. And the United States built a reputation, we've heard the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee say this, as America is the country that gets things right, right? It, it, it helped win two hot wars, it won the Cold War, it put man on the moon, um, and in so many other ways served as a model to others. Even in the height of the Cold War, we were working on civil rights, uh, acknowledging to the world that we are a flawed nation, but we're always trying to do uh, better at the end of the day. But over the past two decades, you held out an example of bad strategy, uh, two examples of bad strategy, right? Both Afghanistan and Iraq as being bad strategy. Uh, we did very little to address uh, COVID. Um, we, on this program, were tracking American fatalities and noted to people when we passed 3,000 uh, that at this point, a disease had killed more Americans than actually the terror attacks uh, had ultimately. And, and now we're going to be much closer and well beyond 700,000, unfortunately, before uh, this is said and done with one one in five hundred Americans impacted. We have great teachers like like you, Elliot Cohen, Frank Hoffman, Tom Earhart, Tom Mankin, uh, and and others who are teaching strategy and and net assessment. And yet we're still fouling it up and not being ready for prime time. It's it's a it's a two part question. What is it we have to do to get better at this? Because we now have a first order strategic competitor in the form of China that is trying to present its authoritarian model as actually beneficial on a worldwide basis. And what are the implications when a great power like the United States is just screwing it up all the time and just not, you know, obviously not ready for prime time? Oh, my, a huge question. So uh, let me try to be brief, but I won't do fairness to it because that's another. It'll be a wonderful whole session with two or three people wrestling with it. So I think I'm happy to have you back on, by the way, if we want to have be, a, a deeper I'd version be, of that. I'd be happy to do some time and maybe you'd have a couple of people. So because sometimes with the competing views, we can be clearer. I think first, uh, the U.S. has made some right decisions, uh, uh, rightly understood a, a threat or an opportunity has developed a coherent strategy for pursuing it and has accomplished uh, what we set out to. Uh, so that's the story of America doing things right. We pride ourselves on being a can-do nation. And when you watch and see what's happened in uh, much of the technology sector, it's unbelievable, uh, remarkable. I mean, how, how can so many uh, things be done and accomplished? So. I would say that's who we are uh, and mean to be, okay? That's on the first. Secondly, it's also true historically uh, that we're, uh, as Churchill said, we only do the right thing after we've exhausted all possible alternatives. So there's a history of the US of screwing up badly before we finally get our act together. But when we get our act together, then, uh, uh, and I believe in that story. I mean, Lee Kuan Yew, uh, one of my mentors, uh, said that uh, he, he could not possibly understand how it was, how it could be, but that the U.S. has repeatedly uh, basically got to the edge of catastrophe, and then Phoenix has risen from the, uh, from the, uh, from the ashes. So I would say that's our story, and I'm hoping and praying that, uh, you know, happens now. But on the other hand, that's no excuse for dumb strategic choices. And we made dumb strategic choices in 
turning uh, into an attack and an invasion and occupation of Iraq and an attempt to occupy and rebuild a country in Afghanistan and $7 trillion and more than 10 or 12,000 Americans killed and all the, all the costs of that. So I would say dumb strategic choices are dumb. Actually, dumb strategic choices with respect to our, to our balance sheet. Uh, it's hard for people to remember, but when Bush became president in 2001, right. Alan Greenspan gave a famous speech saying there's a problem. You know, we're not going to have any debt that's going to need to have be financed by 30-year treasuries because we've, we're eliminating our debt. And how can financial markets operate without that? And now we've put on to our credit card, you know, it's 2020. Uh, $1 trillion pushing off to children and grandchildren makes no sense, again, for a, a rich society like ours in, in the long run. And then finally, for the Washington story, uh, we build up these large institutions, but uh, they develop their own essence and, and rationale and routines, and they have their own core cadre or their rice bowls, as the Pentagon says, I wrote about this in Essence of Decision and have you know, written about it and watched it since. I think the extent to which then sclerosis sets in and people are about uh, preserving whatever that is as opposed to performing, especially if required to perform new tasks. And I think there's no more dramatic example than the abject failure of the American system public health system on COVID from the president right down to the, to the ground level. Uh, just again, briefly, I would say, while President Trump made many bad choices and failed to understand the problem and is culpable for much of the death that's occurred since then, I believe if I go down every level of that bureaucracy, so take, take uh, uh, Fauci, uh, who became famous because he was standing up to Trump and I supported him for that. But he's been responsible for a, something called the Institute for Infectious Diseases for now. We was there when the Reagan administration, when I was. And their responsibility is to prepare the nation for infectious diseases. Excuse me, COVID is an infectious disease. But three months after COVID, when South Korea was conducting tests on uh, patients to be able to separate the infected from the, uh, from the healthy, the US had no capability for uh, conducting uh, tests to determine who was COVID infected. So how can that be for the whole FDA, CDC, Institute of Infectious Diseases system? And I and if go to HHS and DHS. Each of them had given multiple, each of them had every year given a discussion of what they had done to prepare the U.S. for uh, future possible biosecurity events and future possible uh, uh, pandemics. Uh, they actually produced a very good war game version of it, the Crimson Contagion. They played it for uh, for Trump's team at the beginning of the term. But what did they do? So they had a lot of briefing books, they had a lot of, of, of uh, discussion. What had they done to prepare 
for something as simple as testing who had a disease for a new uh, pathogen. Right. So I would just say, uh, shame on us for letting so many of the systems continue in a sclerotic fashion, doing what they were doing before. And that was one of Andy's most, uh, you know, greatest frustrations. And he, the task of how one could get such institutions, not necessarily to become very smart, but to become at least a bit smarter and do things better was one of his biggest challenges. And, and how do we, um, uh, just before I go on, because I wanna um, spend the rest of the conversation on China, but how do we get better at that, right? I mean, it seems as though we're generating folks who study strategy. There are a lot of people who talk about strategy and yet we keep doing stupid crap and it has to really, it starts with stop. You know what I mean? It's almost like the Hippocratic oath, stop doing stupid stuff. and, And then you can build off of it. What are the things we have to do to get it right? Because at this point in history, it's really important for us going forward to start getting it right. Absolutely. Right. So, Andy, so how do we, how Andy, do we do that? Uh, Andy was famous for uh, these uh, statements. He would sometimes write them out on a little card. He had one of the the, the cards in his uh, office that said, "If the U.S. ever faced a serious enemy, we would be in deep trouble." <laughs> this was right. when we were fighting the Soviet Union. Uh, uh, and he had another, and we face a serious adversary now. We do, we do. So that's what he was uh, reminding and, po- and pointing us to. I think trying to find ways to make the systems of which we are part as individuals a more agile and smarter and more willing to take to, to pay some costs in adjusting things to which we are otherwise committed, uh, that, that's, that's a request or, you know, sort of a, 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 a ask for courage. In business, where you have competitive organizations, if a company just keeps doing the same old thing that it did before, there emerges a competitor which eats its lunch and the company basically uh, declines. I mean, look at IBM, uh, which was one of the great companies, or look, indeed, look at Intel. Uh, Xerox, right? I mean, yes, Kodak, all of absolutely. these companies so, did not see competitors and, and they've all and you know, been relegated to the dustbin. Yep. And if you go to the top 100 companies 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 25 years ago, so in a highly competitive environment, unless you can be smart, adaptive, and, and adjust, uh, you don't survive. And actually for other institutions live without such direct competition. So Harvard has managed to hang on, even though I would say not always the swiftest or the smartest, but somehow it's a more buffeted market. Uh, uh, But the US government, again, has been, fortunately we inherited a broad oceans, weak neighbors, a good hand, uh, and uh, then we made some great choices, uh, and World War II being among the most dramatic, but the Cold War. So, uh, but I think going forward, uh, I mean, here, here, just to take a radical question. So, um, if if unmanned aircraft 
or had been invented before manned aircraft. Would anyone propose putting a man in a vehicle to engage in surveillance or to go drop a bomb or even to engage in air-to-air -air conflict? Uh, I think, whoa, <laughs> you can't say that. Well, I just did, okay. So right. now what would that mean? Uh, that would mean, I can't even think what that would mean, but you can imagine. Right. I think similarly, if you look at the vulnerability of carriers, uh, given the increases in capability of offense versus defense, I think that every... Every uh, vice chair since Jeremiah has had their doubts about the viability and the level of investment in, even though there are many things, many reasons why we need carriers for other reasons and have good purposes. But in any case, questions about the relative allo allocation of effort there. And I think similarly for heavy, uh, heavy systems within our, uh, within our army, that part of why then, on the other hand, there's reasons for hope if you look at the amount of imagination and adaptation and invention that's occurred in the special forces space in the counter-terrorist campaign, it compares very favorably with, uh, I think, in a, you know, what's at our best. So I think we're, uh, I, I, I'm not at all giving up on our team. I think we have a good team, but I think we need to be uh, smarter and we need to be more agile and we have to appreciate that Inevitably, a system acquires legacy con continuities that will not be fit for service in new environments, especially with rapidly changing technologies. Yeah. Let me uh, take you uh, to China. You wrote uh, Destined for War now more than four years ago or about four years ago. Uh, a lot has changed in the relationship since. Uh, she believes that greater authoritarianism is the, uh, um, the way forward. It'll fuel more growth, not recognizing that it's actually going to economically weaken the country. Uh, at the same time, its military capabilities uh, improve. Uh, that could prompt, as authoritarian states do oftentimes, get a little drunk on their power. Um, China already sees itself somewhat superior to the United States uh, as it is, the United States as being a declining power. And then actually that could trigger war. And that's one of the factors that you've been paying attention to and looking throughout history at these great power inflection points uh, or inflection points between uh, declining and rising powers, whether that's in relative or absolute terms. And your view of China is a much more nuanced view on how it is we have to deter and engage. Where are you now in your thinking on how we need to deter, but also how to engage and how dangerous this relationship will be? My, my concern has been China is becoming more dangerous. And so the importance of us fielding capabilities that will demonstrably deter China become much more important in this phase, right? If you're doing it by 2050, you, you, you may miss, miss the boat. What's your thinking on where we are, how we need to engage, how we need to deter um, to avoid things going very badly wrong between two nuclear armed powers? And indeed, uh, China is investing massively in nuclear, right? So that's likely to go from worse to worse. Okay, another topic for more than an hour, but let me do four or five points briefly. 
So first, a diagnosis precedes prescription. Uh, that's medicine has learned that mostly the Washington policy community is not. We say, don't just stand there, do something. <laughs> right. So I would say, no, just stand there, get the diagnosis right first. That was the point of my book, Destined for War, that was published just as Trump became president. So it's not about Trump. It's about what's happening in on the grand canvas of history. And I believe uh, this is now largely accepted. Uh, uh, but I and I also am now even clearer, the more I feel clearer that this is a correct diagnosis as a first approximation, that what's happening is a classic Thucydidean rivalry. So how would I des describe the diagnosis? You have a meteoric rising power that is seriously threatening to displace a colossal ruling power. And that's a storyline that we've seen repeatedly in history. And that indeed Thucydides wrote about brilliantly 2,500 years ago when he watched what was happening in classical Greece. So in classical Greece, uh, Sparta had been the ruling power for a century. Uh, Athens was the upstart uh, city-state, which rose rapidly to rival Sparta. And Thucydides said famously, it was the rise of Athens and the impact of that on Sparta that made the war uh, highly likely, almost inevitable. So historically, when a rising power threatens to displace a major ruling power, alarm bells should sound, extreme danger ahead. Uh, and the classic example of this is in 1914, when a rapidly rising Germany challenged a ruling Great Britain, which had ruled the world for 100 years, and then something as trivial as a uh, uh, or otherwise ma manageable uh, event as the assassination of an archduke in Sarajevo in 1914 became a spark that produced a fire that grew into a conflagration at the end of which by 1918, all of Europe had been destroyed and Europe never recovered as a major player in inter international affairs. So basically uh, diagnosis one What's happening is a China that really is rising. And if you look at every dimension, it's rising rapidly. I've got a, a report that we've done that on the great rivalry that the documents what's actually happened in the 21st century that we'll be rolling out sometime in the fall. And the US is a colossal ruling power. So if Thucydides were watching, he would say, ho hum, we've seen this story before. And now let's sit on the edge of our chairs and see whether this turns out to be the grandest collision of all time. Two, how do wars happen in these Thucydidean rivalries? Mainly uh, you have uh, a syndrome that I described, Thucydides basically described, and I say some more about it in the book, both for the rising power and the ruling power that uh, magnifies misunderstandings, that multiplies miscalculations, and that exaggerates or amplifies the impact of incidents or accidents from third parties. And then something like the uh, Sarajevo, or in this case, 
something happens in Taiwan and one thing leads to the other and the parties get dragged into a war, even though they didn't want a war, they knew war would be catastrophic. Uh, after the war, they think this was insane, but nonetheless, they each found themselves going down the path and neither of them was prepared to get off the path and lose at that stage. So point three, the, this is a classic Thucydides and rivalry, but it's in the conditions of the 21st century. Now, what are the special conditions of the 21st century for the US and China? And I would underline three. The first is nuclear mad. We learned about this in the old Cold War at the end stage. When the Soviet Union required a second strike capability such that we couldn't attack it without destroying ourselves, Reagan said famously, a nuclear war cannot be won and must therefore never be fought. So we would have to change our behavior to make sure that a war wasn't fought because if we fought a nuclear war, we would lose. That was a big idea. It was a hard time for the whole community to get its head around that, but ultimately we did. Secondly, there's a version of that in the climate space now that I describe as climate mad, in which we live in an enclosed greenhouse, an, an enclosed biosphere. The greenhouse gas emissions from either China or the US will be sufficient to spoil it for both of us if we continue along the current path. So unless the US and China can find a way to constrain greenhouse gases emissions, we can dis so disrupt the climate that nobody can live in it since we live in the same biosphere. Well, that's a pretty powerful reason. So third has to do with the uh, basically irresistible benefits of uh, relentless global integration, but I'll save that for, for now. So we have, these two contradictory but compelling imperatives. On the one hand, uh, for the US to be the best rival that we can because we face the most formidable rival we ever faced. And if it succeeds in its ambitions, that will severely compromise our interests and values. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, this is a rival whom I have to cooperate with if I'm to ensure that I don't get dragged into a war by some incidents or accidents or otherwise, or that I can survive in this biosphere over the long run. So how can one keep these two ideas in your head at the same time? So Scott Fitzgerald, uh, the author of The Great Gatsby, had a line about uh, the test of a first-class mind is the ability to hold two contradictory ideas in your head at the same time and still function. So I think that's the challenge. We have contradictory, but nonetheless compelling imperatives to both be the uh, uh, geopolitical rivals, the most formidable rivalry history's ever seen on the one hand, and to be uh, coexisting, co co coordinating, even cooperating on the other hand. And can we manage to do these two things at the same time? I would say that's the test of a first-class mind. Can anybody do that? Well, maybe. Uh, if you look at the companies, they are more accustomed to, to realizing that co-opetition is a concept and there's some practices. Uh, can a 
Can a country do that? A government? Very hard. And can a citizenry? Very, very hard. But that's our condition. So I would say that's the, that's the challenge. And I think if it has the Biden administration and uh, Xi Jinping's administration uh, develop some relationship, well, first us developing a strategy that's appropriate for ourselves, and then them agreeing or coming to some level of agreement about what this relationship would be like, I think uh, a competitive coexistence or even a term that I've written about, the rivalry partnership uh, uh, or sustained Olympics. So my picture, so, we're, so to what end? So I would say the rivalry, a, a fierce rivalry is inevitable because both we both care about being number one and it matters who turns out to be number one. I do not want to live in a world in which China rules if I have any possible alternative. On the other hand, I have to cooperate with China if I'm to avoid a catastrophic war for me, so I have to survive, and to have a climate that I can live in for me. So I've got a powerful uh, commitment to the survival of the US as a free nation to go back to, to our national interests. So in the Olympics, uh, we have competition in which uh, the parties uh, on some level playing field each have an opportunity to show what they can do over time. And lo and behold, if China turns out to have a more successful athletic team than we do, they'll win more gold medals than we do. Actually, they came pretty close in Tokyo. <laughs> this right. just lost by one. But on the other hand, if we believe that a free democratic society can better perform over the long run than their society, will succeed in winning the most gold. So I'm in favor of a sustainable, uh, uh, constrained uh, rivalry in which we win. Yeah. Um, let me just ask one, one last question, right? Um, you were talking about vital national interests, and we have a tendency of thinking of threats as overseas threats, right? One vital national interest is for the American body politic uh, to work. And we're increasingly seeing that fraying in, in part because of disinformation, um, right? When half the population is not grounded in um, reality, it becomes problematic. Unfortunately, nobody who is involved in the propagation of that disinformation is, is interested in stopping it. Ultimately, can the United States lead abroad if it is so divided and dysfunctional at home? In, in this kind of a competition? Yeah. No, good question. And the answer is obviously no. So Biden, I think, has a serious appreciation of this problem. And his, one of the lines that he uses most frequently, both privately and publicly, is Lincoln's line, Lincoln's kind of a warning from 1858, I think it was, just before the Civil War, that, quote, a house divided against itself cannot stand. So in the picture of the long-term rivalry between the US and China, uh, in my book, I in my class, I have this character, we call her 
the Martian analyst. So she's not right. American. She's not Chinese. She has no nationality. She just watches from Mars. She's very objective. But then from time to time, she comes down to offer advice. And I think if she were to come to a meeting between Biden and she, she would say three or four things. First, you know, you guys are in big trouble, big trouble, and face probably insurmountable problems. Two, uh, the problems most likely to defeat you lie within your own border. For America, trying to show that an American democracy can function. For China, uh, trying to show that, as Lee Kuan Yew put it, they can, they can evolve from a 20th century operating system that they're trying to paste 21st century apps onto. That's not going to work for the long run. So you face huge problems within your own border. And if you fail to solve those, your international problems are not going to be <laughs> not going to be very relevant. And if you succeed in, in, in solving those, well, then you'll have another set of problems. And then thirdly, you have problems in your rivalry between the two of yourselves. But if you were to look at what really matters to your survival and well-being of your own citizens, you have more than enough work to do at home, both for China and for the U.S. And I think that while I'm... Uh, uh, mainly interested in the American story there and getting our act in order. I think China faces similarly severe challenges to the system of governance that it's trying to operate. And that uh, I think whether and how much Xi Jinping and his team appreciate that, I don't know. But I think that the understanding or recognition of that is growing in the U.S. and I hope will lead uh, uh, Democrats, Republicans, independents, all of us to find a way to try to uh, get the phoenix to rise from the ashes because otherwise I think the path that we've been on is, you know, a dark one. Dr. Allison, thanks so very much for joining us. An absolute pleasure. Look forward to having you back on, not just for your reminiscences on Andy, uh, but also to talk a little bit more deeply about nuclear strategy and other issues that you've uh, devoted your life to. Thanks so very much. Thank you so much. Very interesting. Good questions. And I'm sorry I have to run. Good. Thank you, sir. All the best. Really appreciate it.